Candace Lim. And I'm Rachel Hampton, and you're listening to ICYMI. In case you missed it. Slate's podcast about internet culture. And Rachel, I wanted to start off with a question that I think will bring us closer together, okay? Mm-hmm. And the question is, who is the randomest celebrity you stand? Like, who mm. is someone you love that I would not expect you to love? I don't know if this is entirely unexpected, given how much I talk about this show and how much I've talked about this show on this show. Um, But recently, as, you know, Succession has passed out of view, as it's been eclipsed by other HBO properties, I've really, unfortunately, found myself falling hard for one Jeremy Strong, which Mm. is not, not really something that I'm super proud of. I'm not going to lie. You know? You know? (laughs) He just is not necessarily my physical type. Kendall Roy is a monster. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's something about how earnest Jeremy Strong is in his respect and his love for his craft that I Mm -hmm. unfortunately find very attractive. He's, He's just really in it. Um, it just, you know, it's, it's not my, I'm not proud of myself, but I'm also not ashamed. I'm somewhere in between. (laughs) I'm some secret third thing. (laughs) You're some secret third thing. I mean, I think that's fair. And I also don't think you're alone. I think it's just as One Direction said, Stockholm syndrome of like, if you were stuck (laughs) in a room with Kendall Roy long (laughs) enough, I think you'd kind of have to force yourself to be like, you know what? You're Okay. Yeah, I mean, he's just so sad, you know? Oh, but I think some people like that. No, I'm. that's what I'm saying. He's so sad. And I think my caretaker instinct, he would be so baby girl. And I would be mm-hmm. like, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, can we move on? Can we move on? We can move on. Absolutely. I can't talk about this anymore. <laughs> yeah, it gets too real. Um, <laughs> I think that's a fair answer. Mine is David Archuleta. Yes, the runner-up to American Idol. Yes, that finale was my January 6th because to this day, look, I like David Cook and I respect his craft, but David Archuleta (laughs) was so clearly the winner. I deny that election. Mm. Anyway, David Archuleta, formative, formative, formative because he was like 16 or 17 when he competed on American Idol and I was approaching middle school. So definitely big crush, big Mm. old crush. Mm Mm-hmm. And speaking of crush, Mm. the reason I love him to this Mm -hmm. day is because, you know, 2018 was the 10-year anniversary of his debut single, Crush, and it is one of the greatest pop debuts. I genuinely mean it. Like, there is something so great about that song, I Stand Forever. And in 2018, on said 10th anniversary, David Archuleta, he went to a little website it's called Facebook. Oh. And he uploaded a video of him performing Crush on the piano wow. for its anniversary. All they ever think about is you. You got me hypnotized, so mesmerized. And I just got to know. Do you ever think? Guys, I cried. I cried. I watched this and I cried. I felt everything. And it was just this reminder that David Archuleta has bars. David Archuleta hits notes. And I love him. I will root for him until the day my internet gets shut off by the FBI. 
are they coming for you because of how much you love David Archuleta? Or is there, like, another reason that FBI is coming for you? (laughs) (laughs) I... Look, Rachel, <laughs> meet me here. Meet me here. Do I'm, you also believe there's an FBI agent in your phone? Just answer that question. I mean, jokingly, yeah. Jokingly. I mean, I okay. do think that I'm on a watch list, and I've said this since I was in college. I just feel like if you think about the multiple intersections of my identity, black, woman, Jeremy hot. Strong stand. <laughs> Jeremy Strong Stan. I'm definitely on a watch list somewhere, you know? And so I wouldn't be surprised if my keystrokes are being logged, but all they're seeing is me going to the Love is Blind Reddit multiple times per day. Yeah. And here's the thing. I do jokingly, but now a little bit seriously, do think there possibly could be an FBI agent in my phone. My whole thing is, I think that there will be a day, let's say 30 to 40 years from now, when they're like... (laughs) where they're like I can't take it I can't (laughs) I can't take it all she does is go on Tumblr and looks up Joel Miller fan fiction I can't take it and so they take scissors they take scissors they come to my house and they cut the spectrum cord and that is the day that I decide to stop standing David Archuleta and when that day comes (laughs) I don't even know I'll be there I'll be there watching Waiting, rooting for you. Um, so those are two random celebrities we stand. There's Candace giving you her predictions for the future. Mm-hmm. Um, but we may not agree on what exactly will happen in 30 to 40 years, but I think we can agree on one thing. And that is a journalist that we both stand. Are you talking about Megan? I'm talking about Megan. Megan with two N's. Megan Cunith, a.k.a. the reporter who was following the Tory Lanez trial last year and just breaking through the misinformation spread by the Shade Room and the Shade Room comments. Coming through as a voice of accurate reporting and reason. And the thing is, we're not the only ones who love Megan because Black Twitter also loves Megan to the point that they call her Megan the Reporter, which is a reference, of course, to Megan the Stallion, mm-hmm. who, of course, was a witness in the Tory Lanez trial. And basically, Black Twitter now tags Megan the Reporter anytime there is a Black celebrity court case that she needs to cover because they trust her. And do you know how much it takes for a bunch of Black people? To stand for a white woman (laughs) takes a lot. Yeah. And I just want to say that whoever ends up playing Megan Cuniff in her biopic like 15 years from now, let me tell you something. They are 100,000% going to win the Oscar. I'm so dead serious Mm -hmm. because Megan is our Aaron Brockovich. Okay. I mean, Rachel, who do you think will play her? That's such a good question. Um, You know what? Florence Pugh. Hmm. I'm just throwing out Oscar contenders. Florence Pugh. That's actually a really good one because the Academy loves her. Mm-hmm. I feel like Julia Garner is going to try and throw her hat into that uh, ring. I have yeah. this very bad feeling that Sydney Sweeney is going to oh try God. and kind of like do another reality and audition for this one. Mm-hmm. But I also feel like um, little underdog. I wonder if Dakota Fanning could possibly oh. take it. You know, maybe she'll be like Brendan Fraser and just kind of like be the comeback kid that award season needs. Mm. Anyway, 
What we're saying is if you are an up-and-coming actress and you want to win an Oscar in 15 years, let me tell you something. You start wearing blazers in the streets when the paps come out. You start taking fan selfies with glasses and a little fist because next thing you know, you'll be Julia Roberts winning that Oscar. And until then, until that fateful day, we actually have the honor of speaking to the real Megan Cuniff today on the show because we're going to talk about the current celebrity case that is taking over Black Twitter. It involves DJ Envy and the Ponzi-like scheme that he may or may not be involved in. We're going to ask Megan for her thoughts on the situation and what it's like to be the hero of Black Twitter. But before we hear from Megan, Rachel is going to fill us all in on this DJ Envy situation. That's coming up right after a quick break. Hey, y'all. If you love our podcast, then please consider subscribing to Slate Plus. When you subscribe to Slate Plus, you get no ads on any Slate podcasts, including this one. You will also be supporting the show. ICYMI would not be possible without the support of Slate Plus subscribers. You will also get bonus segments or episodes on shows like Sobern, Amicus, The Ways, and Big Mood, Little Mood, and ICYMI in the near future. You'll also get unlimited reading on the Slate website, which means you get access to every single article and advice column on Slate without ever hitting the paywall. To sign up, just visit slate.com slash ICYMI plus. That is slate.com slash ICYMI plus. And we're back explaining my favorite thing in the world alleged fraud. Before we dive in, I feel like I actually haven't asked your opinion on this. Candace, mm. how do you feel about scams? Do you like them? Do you love them? Are you neutral? Are you anti-scam? <laughs> I maintain that in order to commit a white-collar crime, you must be the smartest person in the world. Because I can't. And you know what? If we're talking Fire Festival, for example, uh. hate it. I hate when a man does a scam. Mm. Don't you have enough rights in this world? <laughs> However... <laughs> I do love when a woman does a scam, okay? Give me an Anna Delvey. Give me an accent that literally does not exist and put it on Netflix, all right? I am here for both women's rights and women's wrongs, okay? Second question. How familiar are you with the world's most dangerous morning show? Mm, If this is the morning show I'm thinking of, I just have to say that all I know about it has come to me through Jesus and Miro and their possible beef with a person on that show. Mm-hmm. That is a good source to know about The Breakfast Club because that is the show I'm talking about. I'm talking about The Breakfast Club, which is the long-running iHeartRadio morning show hosted by Charlemagne the God, DJ Envy, and formerly Angela Yee. For those of you who are fortunate enough to never have listened to this show, God bless your soul. But it's probably the most popular hip-hop radio show out there. If you have been online in the past 10 years, you have definitely encountered bits and pieces of their interviews that go viral. You might remember, for example, the interview where Hillary Clinton revealed that she carried hot sauce in her bag from the 2016 election, or that interview with Joe Biden where he said, if you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump, then you ain't black. Yes, Joe Biden said that. Yes, he wants us to forget it. No, I will never wow. forget it. Wow. That was on The Breakfast Club. That was on The Breakfast Club. And you might be asking, how did a show 
called The Breakfast Club that built its audience off of interviewing some of the biggest names in hip-hop end up becoming a campaign stop for the Democratic primary leading up to the 2020 election. And the thing is, that's not even an exaggeration. Everyone from Elizabeth Warren to Bernie Sanders to Seth Moulton, do you remember him? Because I don't. They went on The Breakfast Club. But luckily for you, and unluckily for myself, I spent hours of my life watching this show in 2019 and 2020. And almost got sued by Charlemagne to answer this very question. Rachel, are you about to quote yourself? I am. Because work smarter, not harder. In 2020, I wrote a piece explaining how Charlemagne became the black voice of the white political establishment. So, <clears throat> this is written by Rachel Denae Hampton. <clears throat> Quote, in the decade they've been on the air, Charlemagne and his co-hosts Angela Yee and DJ Envy built their audience on scandalous interviews with guests from Kanye West to Louis Farrakhan to Dick Gregory. Snippets of their conversations have become viral memes with Birdman's Put Some Respect on My Name and Soulja Boy's Drake. Two of the more lasting ones. The provocation for provocation's sake ethos of the show could in theory have relegated Charlemagne to a realm of diminishing influence like talk show host and former shock jock Wendy Williams, a mentor of his. Instead, Charlemagne has managed to leverage his outrageous, irreverent interviewing style into lasting cultural and now political cachet. End quote. In that same decade, The Breakfast Club has garnered around 8 million listeners a month, 70% of whom are Black and most of whom are under 45, just to give you a taste of who is keeping The Breakfast Club alive and well. Mm. First off, whoever wrote that piece, fantastic writer. I hope they know that. Second... Basically, The Breakfast Club has a very strong hold on culture. Mm -hmm. It occupies a very specific place in the Black media landscape, which has been contracting even faster than the regular media landscape, which is contracting at such a rate that I'm considering going to law school. (laughs) All of this to say The Breakfast Club is a pretty big deal, both politically and culturally. Unfortunately... For all of us who'd rather not be represented by someone who once sniffed the seat of J-Lo's chair after she left the studio. Mm, I'm sorry, what? Mm-hmm. That's still online. You can go look that up. But we're not here to talk about Charlemagne. Thank God. Not least because I really can't handle another letter from his lawyer. We're here to talk about one of his co-hosts of The Breakfast Club. Rashawn Casey, better known as DJ Envy, has been a fixture of hip-hop radio since the early aughts. He DJed on Hot 97 before moving over to Power 105 when The Breakfast Club started in 2010. I don't really know how to sum up DJ Envy quickly besides saying that he and Jay-Z are colleagues, if not friends, and that in 2016, DJ Envy voiced support for Stop and Frisk and only apologized after being criticized constantly. Constantly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's a man of multitudes. And apparently, allegedly, one of those multitudes is scamming or being scammed if you believe what his lawyer is saying. Mm -hmm. Okay, so walk us through what is happening here. So, October 18th, middle of the month, Cesar Pena is a business associate of DJ Envy. He was arrested for his alleged role in a real estate Ponzi scheme. On that same day... NBC4 in New York reported that the New York office of iHeartRadio, where the Breakfast Club records, was raided by federal officials who took electronics. Just for the record, I'm in Slate's New York office today, which is why my audio sounds so crispy. And I'm just imagining being in the middle of recording as I am right now and looking up and seeing the feds 
<laughs> taking laptops. <laughs> the feds. Scandal. <laughs> I know. I mean, I'm not saying there is or is not incriminating evidence on my laptop, but I literally would just throw my laptop out a window. I'd give it to a pigeon, <laughs> tell him to fly west because that's terrifying. That's terrifying. It really is. I don't think I have anything incriminating on my laptop, but when the feds come asking, I get a little bit scared. Um, speaking of the feds, I'm going to read a bit from the official statement that was released by them after they arrested Cesar Pena. Quote, plain and simple, the defendant ran a fraudulent scheme. They falsely represented the nature of their business and lied about potential investment returns to bilk unsuspecting victims out of millions. This is said by Tammy Tomlin, who is a special agent in charge of IRS, Criminal Investigations, Newark Field Office. Law and order. Tammy goes on to say, Today's arrest highlights IRS criminal investigation and our law enforcement partners' commitment to investigate and prosecute unlawful behavior. Okay, so what exactly was the unlawful behavior? Okay, so to be clear, I have not yet gone to law school. So the way I am explaining this is the closest I'm going to get to legal specifics. Officially, Pena allegedly, quote, co-mingled victim investors' money and used new victims' investments to pay off prior investors and cover personal expenditures. Basically, the prosecutors are claiming that starting in 2017, Pena would take investments to renovate and resell properties, mostly in New Jersey, but also elsewhere. This is known in the Property Brothers world as flipping properties. And Pena promised investors a 20 to 45% return on investment within five months, which in this mortgage economy maybe should have let some people know what was going on. Mm. But allegedly, Pina used the investor's money to pay back other earlier investors and also, of course, for personal enrichment because why run a scheme if you're not going to be personally enriched? Mm. Allegedly. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it's a Ponzi scheme or or a Ponzi-like scheme. Mm -hmm. The news keeps calling it a Ponzi-like scheme. I don't really know what, you know, changes between a Ponzi and a Ponzi-like scheme, but (laughs) allegedly he is running a Ponzi-like scheme. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And... Where does DJ Envy come in? So the prosecutors are claiming that one of the ways that Pena built credibility for his flipping business was by holding real estate seminars with DJ Envy. And Envy would promote this project on The Breakfast Club, which is perhaps why iHeartRadio was raided by the feds. Here's Envy and Caesar on Drink Champs explaining the process of their investment scheme. Most people think... Like, you have to have, like, 20% down or something like that. I think that's what the way we were raised. Like, yeah. mm-hmm. I think, you know, even with my moms and my pops, like, they were always like, I don't want to owe nobody. Just pay for everything. Mm-hmm. But, but that's not the case. You want to use as little as possible. Like we Yeah, always... I actually fucked up doing that. But by the way, but buying it outright. Okay, because okay. you have nothing. Yeah, yeah. You put down as little as possible. Like right. we said, if you... You buy a crib and it's hundred thousand dollars, right? Let's say the crib is hundred thousand. Why put hundred thousand dollars down? Mm. You put ten percent down. So instead of buying one crib, now you can buy ten cribs. Mm. Now those ten cribs, let's say 
will bring you $1,000 a crib or $1,500 a crib. Now you're making 1,500 times 10 mm. opposed to 1,500 just by one crib. Mm. And then, but I'll tell you one thing, there's so many people that do it, celebrities, yeah. athletes, but executives. But take 100 grand and make it. Just make, pay for everything out flat. Yeah, oh, okay, and we have minimum cribs. And right. me and C's really sit down with a lot of people. You'll be surprised right. the amount of people yep. who we sit down with and be like, yo, you're doing it wrong. You need to do it like this. And we go through and help them get their loans, help them refinance, pull money out, help them get cribs. And we charge them wow. nothing. Wow. Oh. Nothing. And here's the clip that went viral in the aftermath of the arrest where a guest asked Envy what exactly this business is all about. Uh, it, it's, it's very prescient, is all I will say. Envy, I, oh, I adore man. you. I, I want to get a house from you. Should I, I don't see? sell houses. But what if you flipping something? Ain't it okay. houses? Or what the fuck you <laughs> doing? Right. Every time I see you doing something, you flipping a house in New Jersey or some shit like that. No, I'm not a realtor. I buy houses, I fix them, and I rent them out. I'm not a realtor. I'm trying to encourage people to buy homes and to create You should become wealth. a realtor. Okay, but I'm trying to figure out because then you got the home, and you try to make money off the home. And you making money off the home? Yes, ma'am. So you selling homes? I'm selling rooms you, or apartments. I'm keeping it. SROs. Yeah, I'm keeping it. So oh, you the slumlord. Oh, you got four families worth of niggas living under one roof? Oh, oh my. my God. Did the government know? I'm trying to encourage people to buy homes and to invest in themselves so they can always have property instead of continue to rent. By investing in you and get putting no. money in your pocket. Let's not act like you not making money. I'm just to the point I was making is you making money, right? I'm doing it the right way without getting got. But they got to get got by you before they don't get <laughs> So it's well known that Envy is involved in some sort of like real estate venture. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So much so that a lot of the investors who spoke to NBC4 said they really only got involved with Caesars Project because of Envy's cosign. There's Augie Rios, who has done um, auto wraps for multiple of Envy's cars. Um, Anthony Martini was a producer who knew Envy. Billboard is reporting that Envy is actually a co-defendant in nine of the lawsuits against Pena. Importantly, Envy has not been indicted by the federal government yet, and he is claiming that he is also a victim of Caesars, that he was basically just an investor who was taken advantage of. Here's a clip from a recent episode of The Breakfast Club. Now, Caesar, if he took money, I wasn't privy to it, nor did I even know. But I do understand how people feel if they did give him money because I gave him a lot of money. Jesus. That I didn't see a dollar of return. But for for anybody to say I was involved, that's totally not true. And do we believe him? I don't really know. I'm going to be honest with you. I really kind of stretched the limit of my... My legal knowledge explaining what was going on. Uh, And the thing is, I'm not alone in not knowing because as soon as Caesar was arrested, as soon as people realized that something that DJ Envy had promoted on The Breakfast Club was being raided by the federal government, people started calling out for a savior, a legal expert to explain what exactly was going on. And there was really only one person that was trusted to handle that responsibility. Ah, yes. It is time for Megan the Reporter, also known as Megan Cuniff, who gained a voracious fandom from her work covering the Tory Lanez trial. She'll be joining us live from the courthouse. So live, you might actually hear like doors behind her closing, opening. And we're going to be with her after a short break. (laughs) 
And we're back. Joining us today is Megan Cunip. She's a legal affairs reporter who has covered some of the biggest trials in recent internet history, including the Tory Lane trial, which gave her the iconic name Megan the Reporter. You can also read her work at the Substack Legal Affairs and Trials. Welcome to the show, Megan. Thank you so much for having me. So as a first time guest on the show, there's a question we have to ask you, which is what is your first internet memory? Probably my first internet memory was being, I think it was like elementary school when I realized you could go over to the uh, public library in Corvallis and uh, use your library card to sit down at a computer and like surf the World Wide Web. And I remember uh, just looking up like different celebrities at the time that were famous. And then also it was when uh, professional wrestling was kind of in its uh, golden age in the nineties of like uh, NWO and WCW WWF war. And I was watching it at the time. So I remember uh, finding like WCW.com or some professional wrestling websites and being like, wow, it's got all this information about uh, everything you can think of right here. That is beautiful. And I feel like kind of perfectly dovetails into what we're currently talking about, which is celebrities, specifically celebrity trials. You're a very experienced court reporter and you've been following the legal affairs beat for a while. The Tory Lanez trial happens in 2022 and there's just a lot of misinformation being thrown around, especially on Twitter and from the kind of scorched earth of that coverage rises you, who (laughs) became the go-to source for this celebrity trial. So I wanted to ask, how did you kind of start covering the Tory Lanez trial? Was it assigned to you? Were you kind of just perusing the dockets or Twitter and you decided, you know what, this is this is for me. You know, we I was already at uh, LA Superior Court for law and crime covering the Harvey Weinstein trial and the Danny Masterson trial and the Harvey Weinstein jury was still deliberating when the Tory Lanez trial had happened and uh, the PIO's office at the courts sends something out to the media list for big trials like that saying, you know, hey, sign up for a pass if you want one. So I had signed up for a pass just because it seemed like the thing to do because it's not like if you get a pass you're required to go to the trial. So it's just a good idea to get it. And I, I was talking with some other reporters about it and we were wanted to see Megan Thee Stallion's testimony, but I just hadn't heard of the case before and didn't really realize what a big deal it was. But I just figured as long as I'm at the courthouse waiting for the Harvey Weinstein jury, instead of just sitting in this hallway, I might as well go cover the trial. So I actually remember having a conversation with Winston. Uh, he's a re- reporter at The Hollywood Reporter. He and I worked at the Los Angeles Daily Journal together, and he was covering the Harvey Weinstein trial. And we were sitting in the hallway waiting for the jury. And it was like 20 minutes away from the stated start time for opening statements in the Tory Lanez trial. And I remember negotiating with Winston and trying to get him to agree to go up into the uh, Tory Lanez courtroom and like get my attention if the, the Weinstein jury was coming back because I wanted to go up and see openings, but I didn't want to miss the verdict on that. So I, I just remembered not like not being really sure that it was something that I should prioritize over Weinstein. But then when I started covering it, being kind of taken aback by how much attention it got and realizing that people were way more interested in that than anything else I'd covered. Yeah. And in a way, you kind of end up becoming a part of the story. You end up becoming a part of the kind of coverage, so much so that Tory Lanez posted about your coverage specifically. And I wanted to ask, what was that like? Had that happened to you before? 
It, it hadn't happened on such a big scale because, you know, he's a, a, a much bigger celebrity than anyone, any criminal defendant I'd written about before. And he had such a big following, but I was definitely used to criticism from people I've covered kind of going back to when I worked at the spokesman review and uh, covered a white supremacist lawyer who was actually arrested in a murder for hire case, a federal murder for hire case. He had hired his handyman to kill his wife and mother-in-law and he was prosecuted in federal court and he had ties to, he was actually a lawyer for Richard Butler in the Aryan nations. And I remember it was uh, told to me by some people in, in Kootenai County, Idaho, that the Steeles, Edgar Steele and his wife will make a lot more sense if you understand how deeply entrenched in the white supremacist movement they've been for like decades. So he had a group of supporters who were like just outright Nazis and would comment on the spokesman review articles about how I was like a government plant and all that. So it, it was on a, obviously on a much smaller scale, but I was... I mean, it's kind of the same thing, like just the people you write about are going to criticize you. So I was definitely used to that and you have to have a thick skin, but I wasn't used to it on such a, such a larger scale and, and having somebody kind of use social media as like a bully pulpit like that. That kind of perfectly dovetails into my next question, which is that you didn't interview with GQ after the trial. You said, I hope people see this as just an example of how different internet life or blog life or your perception of a case from the internet comments can be from what actually is happening in the courtroom or what actually is happening in real life. And I wanted to ask if you could say a bit more about that and the kind of misinformation that's spread through like blogs and Instagram accounts like The Shade Room and how that kind of intersected with your coverage of the Tory Lanez trial. Yeah. And there, there was just so much focus on, I thought, irrelevant details. And, you know, Megan talked about it in her own testimony, the focus on her sex life and so much made about the fact that she initially denied in that interview with Dale, Gail King, that she'd ever had a, I think it was described as an intimate relationship with Lanes. There was just such a, a focus on that. And then not really so much of a focus on just the facts of the trial, like, who is the witness? What are they saying? What were the prosecutor's questions? What were the defense questions? So I felt it was a, a good way for me to kind of stand out from the crowd by just kind of going in and doing what I do in all trials and just kind of covering them from a trial standpoint. And I think that shows the importance of a trial reporter being kind of a generalist. I mean, you're, you learn about a lot of different topics, but the trial reporting skills translate to all different cases. And in that kind of reporting, you ended up developing a kind of fandom of your own while covering this trial, a fandom that I really must say is very well deserved because your coverage <laughs> is like truly phenomenal. I really love how much you focus on this fact that I feel like a lot of people don't know, which is that court documents are not really easily accessible to the public, but that's not really what I'm going to ask. One thing your fans really love to focus on is your iconic haircut, the infamous <laughs> Bob. And you said something to GQ that has been living in my head rent free since I read it. You said, the last time I had my haircut, I was telling the stylist that she's got a lot riding on this. The <laughs> internet needs the Bob. Please say more. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. I was like, well, I just need to embrace this. Right. Like, and we saw, I saw the meme or the graphics that somebody posted on Twitter that was uh, somebody sending out the bat signal and it's like the hair signal 
of me. And I'm like, well, I guess I just need to embrace the bob and keep it cut and trimmed, you know, but it's, it's kind of funny because I'm like, I wonder if people would be upset if they knew that I have been bobless before that sometimes I'll let my hair grow out. And then like if during the pandemic, I went on some uh, national parks, like hippie tour where I just road tripped around the, the West coast. And I had my hair up like in a ponytail all the time, or it was just kind of got a little disheveled, but I, I didn't have the properly trimmed bob, but you know, it, it, it's more a professional look for the courtroom. So I definitely feel like a pressure to, to keep that up and everything. Yeah. So I want to shift gears a bit because there's a recent case bubbling up that involves DJ Envy, flipping houses, and a possible Ponzi-like scheme. Before the break, we ran down the case and who is being accused of what. But Megan, if I'm correct, you originally were not going to cover this case, right? I'm curious, what made you decide to jump in? Yeah, I mean, I was I was thinking that it was still pretty basic in the beginning that there was the press release from the U.S. Attorney's Office and then I think the six-page complaint that laid out the case. And it just seemed like I didn't really have much else to add. You know, I mean, what else can I, uh, what else can I say about this case? But, um, you know, here I am just minding my own business. And uh, my, my friend uh, texted me the screenshot of the tweet that is somebody saying, I know who I want on the DJ Envy case. And it's just my photo. I mean, he, they didn't tag me at all. So I, it, it took a while to notice it, but I'm like, oh, okay, this has like 4,000 likes. And it's kind of like, you know, I'm, I'm still dealing with uh, wh- what is my position in this, uh, the rise of Megan the reporter. It's like, what should I cover? And, and a lot of people have, you know, really encouraged me. It's like, you just need to embrace the, the hip hop celebrity crowd. And I don't want that to be the only thing that I'm, I'm covering, but the hip hop legal issues, you know, there's a lot of interest in that. And then I have this big following. So I just reminded myself that, you know, I'm not, I, I don't know anything big about DJ Envy. I'm, I haven't watched the breakfast club episodes, but I know a lot about wire fraud and the district of New Jersey. And I, I, I saw someone you know, I didn't want anyone to think that I didn't think this was a big deal because it's definitely a big deal. It's a federal case. And that's kind of the nice thing about federal court is it translates states state to state. If you've covered a wire fraud, federal wire fraud case in California or Washington state, it's the same statute. So I know the process for that. So I was figured I, I could explain it. And then it's also just kind of dealing with, you know, my popularity and how do I how do I incorporate that into what I'm doing work-wise? And I've kind of realized that uh, this stuff is really prime for YouTube Live and uh, Twitter, that I might not necessarily have enough to write a full article and send it out to my mailing list. Like maybe that's something that I'll reserve for trials, like the one I'm covering right now today in federal court is the kind of thing that I might send an article out. But the DJ Envy crowd, like if they if they have questions about it or if I can explain something, it's a good time to just go on YouTube Live and and do that and take questions through the chat. And it's just a matter of are you going to get the viewers? But I, I, it seemed like with all the attention I was getting on Twitter, I would be able to translate it into a YouTube Live. And I got the numbers and now everybody wants more. I mean, I've got DJ Envy's lawyer wanting to, to go on and, you know, clear the air, advocate for his client, that kind of thing. So I need to get that set up because I feel like there's, there's so much interest in it, obviously. Like, how can I, how can I ignore the crowds? I mean, speaking of kind of explaining it, could you explain some basic things that we need to know about this case? Like, 
explain it to us like we're five. I know there's wire fraud and real estate involved, but I, I really don't understand what's going on. Yeah, I mean, it's basically just kind of your classic investment scheme named after an investment scammer named uh, Charles Ponzi, where the the criminal intent in the beginning is always questionable because I it, it uh, the idea of a Ponzi scheme has always kind of rem- reminded me of a gambling addiction because it's it's somebody who's taking money from an investor and the person thinks that their money is being invested you know wisely or whatever and is going to get them a huge return but really they're just taking that money and turning it around and giving it to another investor to satisfy that investor and make them think it's a, a return on his money and then they're fundraising from more people and it just becomes this kind of vicious cycle of fundraising from new investors and giving that money to old investors to make them think that they're turning a profit on that so your cycle is just continuing and there's always a thought in the the ponzi schemer's mind that eventually they're going to strike it big and make enough money to pay everyone and right all these wrongs and and it's going to be fine and it sounds like that's the allegation with Caesar is that he'd had this investment scheme with house investments for, for years. And what really struck me about it is kind of just how blatant this had, this had been. I mean, there's no way he couldn't have seen this coming with all the lawsuits that he has from various victims and, and uh, th- things like that. So it's, it, it seemed like it was a pretty slam dunk uh, federal case. And I, I definitely think there's going to be a grand jury a- indictment. Those always happen in federal cases that will have a lot more charges than just the single wire fraud charge. So I know the question that everybody has, is DJ Envy going to face any charges? And of course, that's what his lawyer talks about and is really on the offensive to say that, no, DJ Envy is a victim in this whole thing. But it, it seems like there's new developments in this with uh, Caesar's Instagram live that he did where he, he talked it pretty candidly about this. And apparently it, it doesn't sound like he's trying to throw Envy under the bus or say that Envy had anything to do with it. Whereas Envy's lawyer is turning around and saying Envy was a victim and he's willing to cooperate with investigators so he can get his money back. And so the other investors can get their money back. So if Caesar's not willing to you know tell investigators that he did anything wrong, I, I kind of don't think they really have a case against Envy. And that, I mean, of course his lawyer that he hired has a motivation. I mean, he's a paid advocate for Envy. So of course he's going to be telling everyone that he was a victim in this and didn't have anything to do with it. But especially when Caesar turns around and, and it sounded like his, his Instagram live, which I need to watch the whole thing, but he says that he, he doesn't uh, implicate Envy in it. So I'm like, if Caesar's the only guy and he's not implicating Envy, you know, I'm not really sure. It'll be interesting to see if there's an indictment against him. There's definitely going to be an indictment against Caesar. It's just a matter of do the feds see Envy as somehow more involved or more culpable in this, and they're trying to get Caesar to talk on Envy. But I think Caesar himself says he's not going to do that. So, And do you see this trial kind of turning into the three-ring circus that Tory Lanez's trial did? Like, how are you kind of planning your coverage? Uh, and no, because it's a, it, it's a federal case, so it will be, I mean, the, the chances of it going to trial are pretty, pretty slim. We're so in the early phases on it that it would be, you know, a couple years before that happened. And in these financial white collar crime cases where the feds have, you know, years of bank records, all his business records, I mean, it would just be like, what is the defense here? Usually the biggest 
debate in wire fraud cases is the defense trying to argue that the dollar amount of the fraud is less than what prosecutors are saying it is because the dollar amount affects sentencing and how many years in prison a wire fraud conviction can bring. And those are usually argued like those are litigated through the judge and not something for a jury to decide. So and also the cost of taking this to trial. But of course, the flip side is just looking at the way they announce this and what he's alleged to have done. And if he gets a, a stiff uh, grand jury indictment, it's not like they're just going to give him a plea deal without prison time. I mean, they're going to want him to go to prison for like a few years. So that's usually the motivation for these people to take it to trial. They just they they don't want to do that. So that makes a lot of sense. I guess one final question before we let you go is you were kind of talking about how you've been thinking about this kind of Megan, the reporter title you've been given and how you are kind of in the hip hop media landscape. And I guess I want to talk a little bit more about your kind of thought process about like what trials you're picking like the fandom that you've kind of gained over the past year yeah i mean i, I definitely want to uh, embrace the celebrity trial reporting but not be one of those people who just sits at home all day and just covers whatever law and crime network trial is is being streamed at the moment because i feel like la has a lot of cases like in federal court that don't get a lot of coverage and a lot of my loyal readers and my paid subscribers on substack are la lawyers who are interested in federal trials so i don't want to stop covering that like just because the defendant isn't famous uh you know isn't a reason not to cover something but i also do uh you know there's there's a lot of interesting celebrity cases that don't get a lot of great coverage. So I, I am interested in embracing that more and, uh, you know, embracing that either through like YouTube streams or more social media based coverage, but then keeping my in court LA trial coverage as, as also a basis for what I do, because I know part of my credibility and part of the reason uh, people look to me is that I'm, I'm not just bouncing from celebrity trial to celebrity trial, that I actually have ex- real experience in, in court and lawyers read me. Well, thank you so much for your time, Megan. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Okay, that's the show. We'll be back in your feed on Wednesday, so definitely subscribe. That way, you never miss an episode. Leave us a rating and a review on Apple or Spotify and tell your friends about us. You can follow us on Twitter at ICYMI underscore pod. And you can always drop us a note at ICYMI at slate.com. ICYMI is produced by Sarah Spragley-Ricks, Candace Slim, and me, Rachel Hampton. Daisy Rosario is our senior supervising producer. And Alicia Montgomery is Slate's vice president of audio. See you online. Or in the courthouse.